I'm Linda Yu. I'm a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall at the University of Oxford. My recent book, Macroeconomics, covers quite a lot of the global economy, uh, but clearly needs a new chapter on the economic crisis. And I'm Jonathan Mickey, Professor of Innovation and Knowledge Exchange at the University of Oxford, President of Kellogg College and Director of the University's Department for Continuing Education. My most recent book on globalization did indeed warn that economic globalization wasn't uh, quite such a free lunch as some people seem to think it might be. Well, Jonathan, I think since last we spoke, we're now confronted with another <laughs> bailout package of the British banks. Um, I think the measures announced this week have been put together by the government in an attempt to get credit flowing again. But I think it probably raises a few questions, at least, about the extent to which um, the initial measures of recapitalizing the banking system last October was really sufficient. Absolutely. I mean, I think it shows that the government didn't go far enough the first time round, and I suspect that was largely for political reasons of being nervous at being seen to nationalise the banks and nationalise the banking system, which has obviously in the past been seen as a, a radical measure, which would be a, a step way too far. Even though other countries, you know, France, uh, um, Sweden, others have taken the, the whole banking sector into public ownership in the past. And I, I suppose the trail for it actually was, was Northern Rock, which of course eventually was nationalised and, and now actually the government's thinking of using more proactively to make loans. But it was, if, if we remember, months of dithering before they um, did that. And now we've seen that the first round of major intervention on the banking system in general, the $37 billion some months ago, has actually ended up taking what's turned out to be majority ownership stakes for us, the taxpayer, in, in some of the, the largest banks. And, of course, we've actually paid more than the entire worth of the banks, given their, their current uh, stock market valuation. So I think that the big question is, for how much longer can the, the government stave off nationalising banks, or in the case where they have already got 70% ownership, biting the bullet and admitting that they've nationalised and that they are in public ownership. And I suppose the key point, given what, what you correctly say about the, the need to get um, credit flowing, is why... The, the government is complaining about the behaviour of banks that they own <laughs> and why don't they, they actually use them to directly direct that credit themselves, make the banks that they own actually give the credit to successful businesses who do need credit on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that is um, a question that's come up quite a lot, is why is it that, and we know that banks are in the, the source of the credit crunch, but in what way is the government really achieving a satisfactory result by running the banks, in their view, at arm's length, so preventing state-directed lending, but at the same time realizing the lack of credit in the economy is really squeezing the real economy. So I think in a way the banks are put commercially in a difficult position because they're told simultaneously to build up their balance sheets because of their lack of original capital um, that has caused them to become so fragile, at the same time that interest rates are historically at a low point of 
percent, making lending for them very difficult in terms of the margins um, that they would achieve if they were to lend. And they're being asked to lend to firms which are, for the most part, experiencing a decline in their orders because of the economic slowdown. So quite a lot of businesses just don't look as viable as they did before. And I think an added difficulty for the banking sector is that half of all lending in the UK actually comes from foreign banks, well, foreign banks and, and financial institutions. So once those sources of funding have withdrawn, the British banks are asked to make up for the slack. So not only are they being asked to lend at 2007 levels, provide available credit at those levels, they're also really being asked to expand into the space being left behind by foreign lenders. And that's an incredible expansion of their lending at a time when, as you were saying, banks like the RBS are now worth something like £5 billion, um, a fraction of what they were worth before. So I think that the pressures on the banking sector are, are considerable. I don't think anybody wants the banking sector to be nationalised. I think there is a strong abhorrence to the idea of it, but I fear that the trend isn't looking very promising. And I suppose one other issue um, which would be quite, um, I suppose, quite critical to evaluate how successful the bailout is going to be, and um, the Prime Minister said this himself in the FT last weekend, is they still don't know the extent of the write-downs of the banking system. So it's all fine and well to put in capital into the banking system, but if you don't know how much liability still is attached to mortgage-backed securities and the derivatives traded on them, then how do you know how much liquidity recapitalization is enough? So why don't the banks declare all their bad debts? And this way we know um, which banks are in the most trouble um, and they can get the help they need or even nationalization. And once that's cleared up, I think you restore a lot more confidence in the banking system. But I suppose the difficulty with um, how you implement this is that banks, if they really were to come clean, we pretty much would end up nationalizing them because the mark-to-market accounting by which they judge their balance sheets means the loss in market value of their shares and of their holdings make any bad debts they hold much more substantial than if, say, the market was on an upturn. So maybe we don't want to know the truth, but I would come down on wanting to know the truth. And this idea of letting them linger um, with such bad debts is not a very good one, because you can think about what happened in Japan. By contrast, Sweden created a bad bank, or an aggregator bank, which is being discussed in the US and in Britain, to take all these bad assets off the bank balance sheets of the banks, put them into a bad bank. And then that bad bank, in a sense, can recover the value of the underlying mortgage-backed um, securities when the housing market, which it will, eventually goes up again. And so I suppose the practical difficulty of this is valuing these bad debts and how much liability would end up on the taxpayers' back as a result of it. And valuation was probably one of the reasons why this original aim of the U.S. TARP plan was abandoned. However, that being said, allowing the bad debts to linger doesn't seem like a good way to get the banking sector back on its feet. And I suppose until they do that, we're really not going to be able to see the end of the lack of confidence in the banking system, which has caused quite a lot of downgrading of their shares. Yes, absolutely. I mean, given the lack of transparency up to now, the 
surest way and possibly the, the only way we'll find out exactly what the banks have been doing, what assets they, um, they own, if indeed they really are uh, assets at all, is by owning the banks through, through nationalisation. And it is interesting looking at this sort of history of economic political thought in, in regards to nationalisation and public ownership, where obviously there's always been um, ideological and, and political ownership. And it sort of reminds me of, of the um, debate in Britain during the 1920s and 1930s about coal mining, which of course was a huge part of the, the British economy at the time, and whether that should be nationalised, you know, taken into public ownership endless commissions of inquiry into it. Everyone knew that the private owners weren't investing, weren't running the industry properly, but it was only after the big shock of the Second World War, um, election of a Labour government, that the, the coal mines were nationalised. But then it just seemed to become sort of common sense. And, and not just coal, of course, you know, gas, electricity, railways, the, the whole idea that these you know, basic industries, infrastructure should be nationalised in public ownership. The interesting thing is, when the Conservatives were re-elected in 1951, they actually didn't privatise uh, any of those basic uh, industries, it really only steel was a sort of political football, but, but gas, electricity, railways, coal mining were kept in public ownership of nationalised industries by the Conservative administrations from 51, re-elected 55, re-elected 59, you know, right through to 1964, 13 years of Conservative rule, keeping all, all those um, industries in, uh, as nationalised industries and the reason um, obviously was because the government or public sector wasn't investing in them and, and providing productive infrastructure for private sector companies and you know it could well be that uh, over the next 10, 20, 30 years the financial sector, banking sector gets seen in the same sort of way that successful uh, industries whether in the energy sector or, or uh, um, consumer goods sector or whatever needs a, a basic functioning productive infrastructure including a, a banking sector and having that in, in um, public sector just comes to be seen the natural way of organising it. I think there's certainly historical precedent, um, you know, for it, and and I think one of the difficulties um, for the government to to consider is the if they were to take on all the liabilities of the banking system, how bad does that make the public finances? And this has been an issue with Northern Rock when they nationalised Northern Rock, the liabilities of Northern Rock really went on the public balance sheet, and we know from the precipitous fall of sterling that global markets now view Britain as being a not a very uh, safe and secure economy and taking on record number amounts of debt through the banking system and the bailout packages will have effects not just in the short term on say the value of the currency but also in terms of future taxes, higher interest rates and a period of stagnation that could follow as a result and that is also historically apropos because that is indeed what also happened about three decades ago when you had high levels of public debt which ended up with high levels of stagnation and we know that some European countries like Spain um, have already had their sovereign credit rating downgraded slightly and if that were to happen that would be extremely worrisome um, for Britain especially looking ahead and I suppose that brings us to sort of another measure policy measure that's being discussed is how can you finance the bailout and stimulate the economy without the government borrowing any more and thus the idea of quantitative easing, whereby um, I suppose the, the best example of this is what the United States did um, as a, to think about whether or not uh, this is something the UK ought to 
uh, consider seriously. And every indication is that Britain is considering it seriously, according to the testimony of the Deputy Director of the Bank of England, Paul Tucker, um, on Wednesday, uh, January the uh, 21st. Um, the U.S. at the end of last year, when interest rates fell to between zero and a quarter of a percent, were essentially at a place where the price of money, the interest rate, no longer had an effect. And that meant they turned to quantitative easing, directly targeting the quantity of money. So the Federal Reserve at that point issued $800 billion into the economy, $600 billion of which was targeted to buy up mortgage-backed securities. Another $200 billion was aimed at um, helping homeowners and small businesses. And this injection increase the amount of credit in the economy. It's, it's a nominal injection, hoping to have real effects in terms of the credit available to small businesses. But what was extraordinary about it was that it elicited almost no debate and discussion in the American uh, media, and it didn't go through Congress because this was essentially creating money. There was no borrowing involved, so Congress wasn't involved. And if you contrast that to uh, TARP, the uh, $700 billion plan, which is still being debated um, in Congress as President Obama asked for the second tranche, it's an extraordinary uh, comparison. And so, in many ways, heavily indebted governments probably look upon quantitative easing as a valuable policy tool under those circumstances of zero interest rates and a risk of deflation, and in particular with a risk of deflation because of how dramatic the economic slowdown has been. Reflating the economy with liquidity, with credit, eases the deleveraging process by which households and firms are shedding all of their debt, because we know that some inflation um, reduces the real value of borrowing. But of course, there are a lot of downsides to this policy, including the same uh, reflation uh, also damages the real value of savings in the economy. And there's always this danger of uh, too much change in inflation expectations, which can come as a result of um, this kind of money injection. So I think the U.S., of course, um, has already done it. Whether it works or not, perhaps, will be the best indicator as to whether or not Britain will pursue this um, if interest rates come down from 1.5% uh, to 0%. Yes, I agree. I, mean, I think there's, there's no question that the British government should and will print money um, in order to, to help uh, boost the economy. I think it's uh, the, the question is only the degree to which you, you do it, and particularly being alert and being able to um, reverse the policy when the time is right. So it's a question of the extent you pursue these um, the policy, but also the, the competence with which you do it. You know, and it um, doesn't need to be, or indeed it shouldn't be, uh, counterposed against uh, other aspects of policy. I mean, I, I think the, the, the government should be pursuing, you know, all avenues of policy. So that's um, cutting in interest rates, which of course they've been unable to do because they had the decision making over the, the Bank of England, and uh, so unfortunately, but interest rates weren't cut quick enough when they, when they should have been. But having low interest rates and printing money, quantitative easing, um, in order to prevent uh, deflation, but also um, being active on, on the fiscal side, um, expanding um, government spending, um, using deficit finance as appropriate, which we talked about um, in the previous uh, of these interviews. But there, um, it seems to me, the key question isn't 
whether the government should uh, be active in that area, which obviously they should, it's a question of how you do it. And I mean, it, it seems to me, maybe we'll come on to it in a few minutes to talk about Barack Obama, but you know, the, the um, active government investing in, in bridges and electronic highways and so on is actually a better route than just cutting 2.5% off VAT, which uh, didn't have much impact. So with quantitative easing, printing the money supply, I think just as with interest rates and fiscal policy, and indeed the nationalisation of the banks and the active industrial policy, I think the, the important thing is to be active on all fronts and make, making sure that the overall policy is coherent. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely um, that's absolutely right. I, I suppose one more word of warning for the British government as it thinks about um, using quantitative easing credit creation is that it didn't work in Japan. So Japan, of course, had a deflationary stance on the back of their asset bubble bursting through the 1990s. At the beginning of the noughties, they engaged in quantitative easing, but it didn't work for a number of reasons. One was that it still remained the case that the bad debts in the banking system clogged up the credit flowing through the economy. So the, the transmission mechanism was the problem. It wasn't the amount of injection into the monetary base. And so for that reason, as well as inflation expectations not really being changed by this expansion of money in the system, meant that after a few years, this policy was essentially abandoned by Japan. And the government at that point, about um, three years ago, uh, went back to trying to grow by real means. And I suppose luckily for them, uh, they sold quite a lot of exports uh, to China, amongst other places, and they saw themselves actually beginning to recover. But then, of course, we know what's happened in Asia since. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you did mention President Obama, and um, certainly that has got to be the news of the month. His inauguration um, on January the 20th certainly marked um, a turning point um, in U.S. politics. And his economic policies do hold a great deal um, of promise. Um, he's got a few things um, in the air, and one of them is the use of the rest of the TARP um, fund, so the $300 billion he asked um, previous President Bush to ask Congress to release. They want to use a larger proportion of those funds to help homeowners, but I suppose the more exciting part of this plan is, as you were saying, is the investment um, in green infrastructure, um, and this is the $825 billion uh, economic recovery plan um, that's going through Congress for a vote next week. And um, a large proportion of that is geared at creating or saving jobs and revitalizing um, American infrastructure. And certainly, uh, we do prefer our governments to invest rather to simply spend if they're going to do it on the back of borrowing. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's a, the question is whether the British government is going to miss the boat here and lose out in green technologies to America over the next few years, just like we have over the last few years compared to Germany and other countries which have invested in, in the green technologies, where Britain has been putting all our, well, we've been putting all our eggs in the uh, City of London financial sector of the economy basket, uh, thinking that's where uh, the future of growth is going to be. So, Unfortunately, Britain actually is is lagging in the uh, the green technology area, but it is obvious to everyone that that is where um, important growth has to be over the next few years and decades. So I think um, from that point of view, Obama's uh, policy, while obviously provoked by the economic recession and, and the need to uh, save jobs and create jobs, could actually you know benefit the economy in the same way as in previous era, having new uh, roads and bridges and so on, help create the the infrastructure. And of course, Obama himself has 
linked it to the, the idea of having a, a modernized infrastructure as well so not just the green technologies but also the super highways the, the broadbands the investment in universities and glad he, uh, he mentioned in his uh, inaugural speech as, as well as uh, schools and I think it, it's that sort of um, imaginative and, and far-reaching long-term vision that uh, it, it would be good to have more of in Britain and not actually I think that the key thing it, which is needed is to give confidence that we can have a, another era of sustainable prosperous expansion not just the next six months and wait until the economy recovers but the next 10 years 20 years because I think that, that that's the the most worrying thing still the desperate attempt by Gordon Brown and the current government still seems to be just to try to get back to the, how the situation was a year ago and then everything will be all right even though actually that's what ended us up in, in the current mess. And well, actually the point about banning speculation, the, the short selling was a good example where it created havoc on the stock market. So that was banned, there was no short selling speculation allowed. And then after three months, it was allowed again. And for no purpose, it seems, other than this this idea of sort of just trying to get back to, to how things were. So I think what was refreshing about Obama's speech was this you know, long-term looking to the future, the idea of, of investing for the future and actually rejuvenating the economy. I mean, I think it would be good if, along with you know, low interest rates, uh, quantitative easing, the government in the UK made the, the fiscal um, stimulus much more focused on, on long-term investment in productive infrastructure and uh, green sustainable technologies. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I, I think in many ways the economic crisis has shaped uh, the Obama position a great deal. And it's quite interesting because when he began to pull away from John McCain during the election, it was because of the economic crisis, how he came across as having more ideas and seemed more uh, on top of the issues than his opponent. And of course, since uh, he became president, this is one of the first things on his agenda. And I think what struck me was when he was making his campaign promises, this is before the economic crisis really struck in last September, there were a lot of doubts as to how he would pay for it. It sounds great to renew America's infrastructure, invest in green technology, build a digital superhighway, revitalize the bridges, upgrade buildings and schools and hospitals and uh, create green jobs and make an American lead a leader in this area. It all sounded great, but lots of people were asking, how will you pay for it? Because um, certainly under the previous administration, the U.S. Um, national debt has increased um, exponentially. However, since the economic crisis has worsened so much, this idea that government should use everything in their toolkit, that means deficit spending as well as monetary policy and uh, outright uh, purchases of shares and backing commercial paper and what have you, it all of a sudden, that part of the debate doesn't really seem to be the most important anymore. It doesn't seem to matter so much how will you pay for it because we now think we need deficit spending to prevent this recession from becoming a prolonged depression. So in some ways, it became an opportunity for Obama to put together the kind of investment approaches and spending that he wanted to do. They'll still face opposition, but uh, how to finance it doesn't seem to be as important as how big a stimulus, how well it's positioned, and whether or not these will be public investments that will give us returns far into the future while creating jobs at the present. So I think in that way, everything we thought he was going to have to compromise on <laughs> uh, before the crisis struck, and just in terms of being able to finance what he wanted to do, doesn't seem to be as important 
the debate now is certainly much more how much of this package is tax cuts, um, is that enough, how much of it is geared at investment, and are these in the right areas, are the shovel-ready projects the ones that we want to go ahead, are the states putting together the kinds of things they should um, invest in straight away. So I think uh, sometimes Obama says he's been a very lucky politician. I think he's actually been a beneficiary in some ways of the economic crisis. Yeah, and also Obama has made clear that, well, certainly the approach won't be just tax cuts for the rich, which it was very much was under under George Bush. I mean, in his, uh, in his inaugural speech, he, he did um, have that phrase about you don't create a prosperous economy just by supporting the prosperous. And he's also said that he, he will try to um, clamp down on the tax havens, um, international tax havens, the ways, way that the, the rich get out of paying taxes. Now, it's always um, unclear by definition, almost, you know, um, how much that would bring in. I mean, his aides are reported as thinking that that could be as much as $50 billion, which even in the you know current uh, days with these large figures, you know, would be quite sub- substantial. Um, but again, what's interesting there is that um, there does seem to be an emerging international consensus behind those moves, which of course is all important because the, the problem with trying to clamp down on tax dodging is if you're doing it by yourself as a country, there's the danger they just go and uh, move somewhere else. But, you know, France, Germany, their key players in the European Union have been talking about the need for more moral um, capitalism and there have been international moves um, to to introduce uh, new measures to stop tax evasion and avoidance on a, on a global scale in, in these uh, large uh, amounting to these large figures and again the depressing thing unfortunately is that the the one government really opposing it is the British government which still seems uh, hung up on this idea about um, having free international capital markets which will somehow be inhibited if people um, have to disclose how much they they own where it is and so on so I think that that may be one um, benefit actually uh, to us in, in the UK, Barack Obama really does push ahead with uh, trying to get international agreements to stop uh, tax evasion if it means that um, uh, the UK government is um, brought into that move. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much it calls upon this special relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one thing actually um, I heard this morning um, in an interview with Chris Patton, who of course is the uh, Chancellor of our university, is he said, if Obama really is as multilateralist as he says he is, then that may mean he will come to his multilateral partners and ask for things in return. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the Obama leadership um, really does extend and, uh, and bring other countries along the way. I suspect it will, at least initially, um, because certainly in these kind of dire economic times, um, he struck me in his um, inaugural address as somebody who was cognizant of the realities of the challenges that America and the world faces, but also optimistic um, that uh, by changing a lot of the past behavior that led us there, we will enter a new era of more sensible, I thought, um, consumption um, and um, and policies, and going back to, to basic core values, which um, which was very, very appealing, I think, at a time when all we hear about is how uh, how greed and um, you know, disregard for um, for others perhaps has contributed to where we are. So I'm highly hopeful that um, 
Obama will bring this this type of uh, tenor to all of his policies, um, and particularly the economic one, as we reconstitute um, the kind of economic system um, that we have in the developed world. Yes, those global economic issues are, of course, absolutely fundamental, aren't they? And incredibly important because of the danger that always is with recessions and depressions and unemployment of racism and a, and a reactionary backlash and a, a blaming of foreigners for taking away our jobs and so on. And it, it's often posed as it was during the presidential election campaign of the danger of um, protectionism. But the problem is if the alternative to protectionism is just seen to be trying to return to previous uh, free market system, which produced the, the problems in the first place, um, I don't think it's as, as uh, strong a um, alternative as, as it could be. And I think what potentially is, is um, very important about uh, Obama's election and, and uh, as you say, creating a, a new sort of ethos underpinning the whole idea of international economic relations would be if that becomes accepted to be on the basis of fair trade, um, equality between nations, not just um, Britain and America trying to um, promote their companies to uh, make profit throughout the world. So and that's very important, obviously, for um, continuing to develop productive economic relations and, and trade globally, but also developing a, a globalisation that actually does operate in the interests of the people of the world and the, uh, the, the countries, rather than thinking that, that just some sort of global free market will, um, in some mysterious way, deliver, which was always, of course, spurious because uh, there are huge global players in the terms of the multinationals um, involved. Yes, yeah, so I think the, the whole question about global economic um, relations is very important and it, it would be good if uh, the UK government would come come in a bit more positively because again going back to really where, where we started and the financial crisis here has been ironic with the UK government having majority stakes in major UK banks to hear Gordon Brown then complaining the government complaining that the majority of their lending has been uh, to foreigners rather than to domestic individuals and companies aligned with what you said previously that of course part of the problem is that a lot of the loans that UK companies were dependent on were from banks overseas who are now obviously retrenching and that's actually a very interesting way of uh, illustrating this whole question about globalisation and the discussion and debates over the last 10 and 20 years where there's been an idea pushed that it's some sort of inevitable tendency and it's somehow backward to think that um, the national ownership of a of a company mattered. You know, the questions asked are rhetorically almost uh, so aggressively. Well, what does it matter if a company's you know owned by you know, the Japanese, the Americans, or the British, or or the French? But I think that this crisis has illustrated very concretely that it does matter because precisely the uh, UK domestic companies who were reliant on overseas banks for their their credit um, have seen that those overseas banks understandably have have retrenched their uh, loans domestically um, so I think hopefully out of this it will be seen that uh, we have to develop international economic relations just as we do domestically through through intelligent and proactive policies rather than just a, a reliance on, on some sort of supposed market mechanism that uh, will deliver I think when uh, our Prime Minister Gordon Brown hosts the G20 summit in a couple of months, I'm sure we'll return to this theme. But uh, I think uh, we've uh, 
covered, banking rescues, printing money, and uh, a Green New Deal, and uh, seems like quite a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so perhaps I'll leave it there for this time.